0: It is my great pleasure today to introduce our speaker, An Chao-Mina, who will be talking not about the Internet of Things, but rather the things that emerge from the internet. Uh, An is a technologist and researcher and fellow fellow at the Berkman Klein Center. She leads the product team at Midan, which builds tools for global journalism. Anna is also working on a book about the topics that she's going to be discussing today on internet memes and social movements, which is going to be published by Beacon Press. Now, I've had the opportunity to get to know Anna over the last year. Um, at the Berkman Klein Center through the Hardware Working Group, which An and I, together with Jason Griffey, started. We also have the distinction of spanning 15 time zones, um, which is a challenge that is uh, known by all people who produce things in Shenzhen. Um, So it's our own little taste of it. Um, My own research is about the Internet of Things, and so it's been really interesting hearing and learning about on uh, 's perspective, which is not about just the technology but more about the how ideas on the internet can turn into physical objects and how this process is shaped by people and by social movements i 'm excited to hear more about this today please welcome me well join me in welcoming on
1: Um, I'm excited to speak here because I, I, I became acquainted with the Berkman Klein community about four years ago when I spoke at RaffleCon um, 3, um, with rolling on the floor laughing con. Um, with, and on a panel that Ethan Zuckerman hosted about um, internet meme culture globally. And this talk today is kind of an extension and evolution of some of the research that I presented there. And, um, and it's looking at some new trends around object culture and its intersection with internet culture. So I'm going to be talking about hats if that's um, not obvious from this photo, but I also want to clarify the hats I'm wearing today, um, and the metaphorical hats. I'm a product manager, so I think about products and how products enter the world and how they influence the world and reach new audiences and users. And I'm also a, um, I also look at internet culture and um, and how that intersects with social movements. I'm interested in kind of the, the social power of the internet and some of its drawbacks as well. Um, and I'm also um, a little bit of a photographer so many of these um, many of the photos here are photos that I've taken um, in different contexts around the United States and in China. Um, and as I speak I encourage you to, um, to ask questions. We'll have time afterward for Q&A uh, but also feel free to just raise your hand and, and jump in if you have questions. I'll be talking about two seemingly very different contexts one of which is political uh, political culture in the United States in the past few months, as evidenced by this photo. And then I'm going to jump um, to Shenzhen in China, um, southern China, to talk a little bit about commercial production culture over there. And I'm going to try to weave together some threads and themes um, and talk a little bit about the mechanics of object production as it meets uh, networked culture. Uh, so I want to start uh, with um, a um, you know, the march, uh, from uh, the women's march from just a, a few months back and subsequent marches and, and protests that have happened since then. Uh, from afar, it's, it's, um, it's always a very visually striking movement. Um, you can always see a lot of signs, you can see a plethora of pink hats. Um, and, um, and I think what's interesting here is when you start to zoom in and you see how those signs are structured and how they're often intersecting with the internet. It's very much a networked um, sort of protest in terms of its, its aesthetics and media. Um, over the past few, uh, over the past few years, we've seen the emergence of hashtags, these kind of digital, um, these kind of digital artifacts popping up on protest signs from Black Lives Matter to hashtag nasty, you know, referencing the hashtag nasty woman, um, that popped up after the third presidential debate. Um these hashtags are very interesting to me because it's a digital artifact that then gets expressed into the physical sign. And why people do that um is, is an open question. It's something I'm interested in, in talking about. And as those hashtags, that, that hashtag is this, where it's kind of central to the sign. And these hashtags are starting to behave very similar to how to how we see hashtags on Twitter and Instagram posts, where um they're they're kind of um tying together different signs where the, the main theme is um is the um is is very is uh, semantically very different, but then you have these hashtags that tie together those signs in the same way that digital hashtags might connect Instagram posts and tweets. Um, but here it is. Here it's happening in the physical world. And then you have other sorts of digital artifacts popping up, there's specifically internet memes. Um, the nope, nope, nope octopus um, has, uh, has popped up in a number of signs uh, with these nope, nope, nope signs, uh, which are very common um, um, in different protests. Uh, you have the honey badger doesn't care. Um, this time the honey badger does care, and this is a printout of that same honey badger meme. Um, and then the this is fine dog which became very popular in 2016 also popping up on signs And so you're starting to see the emergence of kind of internet meme culture inside the physical signs which are then photographed They're, they're designed to be photographed and then pushed back online where they, they enter the internet meme vernacular the hashtag why I march was a popular hashtag during the march. And there are a lot number of people like this woman who was encouraging people to actually write on the sign why they march. And she was really riffing off the social media support kit of the Women's March, which had encouraged people to use the hashtag to indicate why they want to march. And so here again, you have a digital practice placed onto the physical sign. And then people were taking pictures of that sign, putting it back online, back on the hashtag. So it became part of the internet vernacular, even though it's happening in physical space let 's dive, dive into one of these um, kind of viral media um, and this is, uh, this was one of the more popular tweets that emerged um, after um, after the elections um, that they came from um, from progressive circles. Um, and so this tweet from April Daniels, as you can see, got 14,000 retweets, really resonated with a lot of people. And then during the Muslim ban protests um, a few months ago, that same tweet started showing up on signs. Um, because it had gone so viral, it had sh- it started to show up on different signs. And this was one that was in Los Angeles, I believe, and then um, it was then posted on Instagram, and then once again entered the, the kind of circulation on the internet. Um, these are photographs that I took of variations of that. People were remixing that. Um, this is uh, obviously Grumpy Cat. The reason she had included Grumpy Cat was so she could have a conversation with her children without using the, uh, the you know, the, um, the, the, the punchline for the original tweet. Um, and then, of course, the, um, uh, and then, um, then other variations where people modified that. And this is in Copley Square in Boston. And so what we're seeing today is protest signs have as their audience and source of inspiration both the physical crowd around them. Um, which is where, tr- where traditionally protest signs have done, the wider internet, uh, the, you know, the internet uh, where people are looking at pictures of these signs, and then all the other protests as well. Um, and what we're seeing is an emergence of kind of a shared visual and verbal vocabulary um, of protest signs um, and other objects that pop up around national protests and, and increasingly in international protests in, in many Western contexts. And I, I included this one because this is kind of an indicator of that new relationship with the network because many signs now have um, have, have words on the back as well because there's no longer this relationship or assumption that the photographer would be in front of you but also might be part of the crowd and therefore taking pictures and therefore maybe might be posting things online anyone who's been to these marches knows that there are also a number of hats that have been popping up and this is a picture i took at the women's march um, because it was right after inauguration day of two types of hats and it was very apparent to me when I entered um, Union Station, to see pink hats and red hats, um, and um, very much the association with these two hats was one of um, you know one of people going for the, coming for the women's march and one of people coming for um, the inauguration day. And so, um, I want to zoom in on the ones on the left first. So these are the, the pink pussy hats. It's the pussy hat project. Started, um, started really the brainchild of Krista in Los Angeles and, um, and became part of a project, uh, with a little knittery in, in Los Angeles. And I'm going to ask, um, if we could start passing out. I actually brought, um, some of the pink pussy hats, um, and start looking at them, um, because from afar they all look very similar. You see the sea of pink heads. Um, but in detail they're actually quite different. And the way the project worked was, um, was the Pussy Hat Project, um, distributed patterns, um, online, um, that, that, um, that encouraged people to, to make these kind of pussy hat, uh, designs. So these pink yarn designs. And then they prefigured that with an illustration of what that might look like at the march to really inspire people. And this this started, this happened about two months before the march and when people started getting together in knitting groups, knitting circles. And instead of, Following the pattern word for word or, or you know kind of script by script, um, instead um, people made variations of that. And what I want to argue today is that part of these hats, um, these physical hats, are actually following internet meme culture and the norms of internet memes. Um, and as you look at them, um, I'll start um, I'll start tying that together. But um, take a look at some of these hats and these variations. Um, these are all variations from DC. Um, from um, uh, here 's a black one with the rainbow um, with the rainbow flag um, these are also from these are from Maryland. Um, you can see on the sign um, different colors beyond pink um, and then this is, uh, this is one from Boston. This is a, a pussy hat prints um, screen prints, um, so, uh, screen prints on, uh, in Oakland. Um, so people are taking that, the basic idea, the basic kernel of it, but often remixing it and as you 're looking at these, you can see in detail that there 're actually quite a bit of variation. Um, and there 's a loom being passed around from uh, Berkman 's own um, Carrie Anderson because she also made some as well, um, and used the loom instead of, a, instead of kind of the hand knit instructions. so people often interpreted reinterpreted the hat um, to their own skills and interests, um, and that was kind of the point um, the, the point of the project was that it was networked um, the, um, in, from these are pictures from the Instagram account uh, for the women mar- for the Pussy Hat project. And um, the whole goal here was that uh, the the hats were designed so that people who could not attend physically um, would make the hat, they would send it to someone who was able to attend, that person who attended would then take a picture of themselves with the hat and send that back to the maker. And so the whole point of this was that it was digital, it was networked, and it was participatory um, in a way that combined both the physical and the digital. So what I'm talking about today um, is um, is that I, I think these, these hats, these signs, and these other objects that I'll be talking about today are part of internet meme culture um, in a different way than, than we traditionally think about objects. So when I talk about internet meme, I want to make a distinction between the kind of Dawkins sense of meme, which is the, um, the notion of the cultural unit, and then the kind of, this notion of the internet meme. Um, Lemore Schiffman has written about this and helps, you know, helps us make a distinction between, um, between, you know, the, the word internet meme is what kind of emerged in the culture of the internet as this kind of unique practice, so this thing on the internet that happens, um, that's kind of diverged, um, like a meme from the original Dawkins sense of meme. So when I'm talking about meme today, when I'm talking about memetics, I'm, I'm typically talking about internet meme memes specifically. And so Schiffman's definition of memes um, is a useful one that I tend to agree with um, that helps us think a little bit about what's going on with these hats and these signs. So uh, an internet meme is a group of digital objects that share a common stance, um, form, and content. Um, And so you have this kind of shared, um, uh, shared, shared characteristics. Um and but there's a platonic form, but no, no one is alike. Um they're created with awareness of each other, so this is kind of social component to it. And then they're circulated, imitated, and transformed via the internet by multiple users. This last part is really important because this notion of transformation and multiplicity is what makes an internet meme different from a viral object, um at least um at least um within the definitions that I'm talking about today. Because a viral object might be like the old spice video um that is shared frequently and is looked at and viewed, but doesn't have this notion of transformation. Whereas a, a video like the Gangnam Style video, where people are dancing along, creating their own videos, is more is closer to what an internet meme is, at least in this definition. So the classic example, of course, is the kind of Nyan Cat, um, where, um, and you're looking at the Nyan Cat. Um, it has common characteristics of form. Um, there are multiple people creating uh, versions of this. Uh, they're following the 8-bit format, and this idea of a cat with a pop tart, but um, but often remixing and reshaping it um, based on based on their perspectives, their interests, their contributions. And in many ways, the pussy hats follow those same formats, right? Um, And in many ways, um, it's as much digital when you look on Etsy, look on Google Shopping, look on any website and just Google pussy hat, you'll see that wide variety of variation just like you do with digital memes. And I think this is intentional. I think this is people aware of um, of the fact that they'll be photographed, the fact that these images will be circulated online, and that their contribution will be part of the shared uh, visual language around protest in the United States. Now, there's often a contrast drawn between, um, and especially on the weekend of the Women's March, between the hand-knit um, pink hats and then the red, um, the kind of red Make America Great Again merchandise that, that was perceived to be mass-produced. And again, from afar, it looked like that, right? You see pink hats, you see red hats. But as you dig deeper, you see that um, these kind of mass-produced objects also have this notion of remix and multiplicity that we associate with internet meme culture and, and as I argue here, um, with object meme culture as well. Um, these are photos that I took during the Women's March. Um, this is a man who's wearing a red hat that he had remixed um, because he was, he was campaigning for transgender equality in North Carolina and so remixed the red hat to reclaim the notion of the red hat for his um, political cause. Other hats included WTF America. Um, this woman had the universal, universalist, Unitarian Universalist principles on her hat. Um, our own Ethan Zuckerman uh, made a remix on um, this Make America Kind Again. And if we could start passing around the red hats, I think those are circulating now. Um, some of the red hats that um, circulating include this one from Geronimo Saldana, who's a activist artist who, who created all these remixes in response to, um, to key phrases and, and things that had been circulating online. Um, and, um, and you can see those hats, um, and you can see how they're made. Um, they all take the form, but then they remix it, they modify it. It's a very different process, of course, from the knitted hats, which rely on hand production. Um, and I'll walk through how those are made. But the, the spirit of this is the same, is that any um, in, with digital objects, we're used to the idea that they never stay still. Um, and now we're starting to see this with certain class of physical objects as well. And I would argue also part of the effectiveness of the hat, if you look at Geronimo's um, profile picture, is that this becomes a political indicator, a declaration of political allegiance through selfie culture. So once again, the hat is physical, but it's also digital. In the same way that screen overlays for marriage equality um, had been a way to indicate political allegiance, you have um, now you have hats as well. And that's part of the effectiveness of the red hats. So 2016 was known as the meme election. I think a lot of people were observing this. I think I'm sure many of us were observing the the number of memes that were popping up. And, um, but I think what was missing from this conversation was this notion that meme life cycles now include both digital objects and increasingly physical objects. And let's take a look at what i mean by that you can see in the background some of the nasty woman mugs um, so I remember during the third presidential debate um, when the republican candidate said um, called the democratic candidate such a nasty woman i'm sure we many of us remember this moment within seconds people responded they created a hashtag nasty woman hashtag nasty as a way of reclaiming that phrase as a, so- a source of power rather than um, rather than an insult within minutes of that there were digital ones um, people remixed Um, The Janet Jackson uh, album, Nasty, to include um, Hillary Clinton's face. There are comics of these. We're used to this kind of thing happening now. This is the meme election. But what was interesting to me was the product memes that popped up after that. If you search on Google Shopping for Nasty Woman Pillow, Nasty Woman Cloth Bag, Nasty Woman Hat, Nasty Woman Mug, Nasty Woman Pin, Nasty Woman Sticker, think about any product and put Nasty Woman, you'll probably find that product. And you'll probably find Endless variations of that product, in much the same way that the digital memes were circulating. Those memes, then, as they shipped, they became part of selfie memes. They were then—this um, is a, a fundraiser this is a photo from a fundraiser for the Texas Democrats. And then um, they circulate, they circulate, they go back online, and again, this kind of intersection between the digital and the physical, um, where the objects are just as memetic as the digital objects. The physical objects are just as memetic as the digital objects. And so, I argued we should under- extend our understanding of internet memes to include physical objects as well. Um, and a certain class of physical objects are not yet nasty women, computers, or cars, or maybe there are, I'm not sure. Um, but for a certain class of physical objects, you have this notion of remixing just as almost as quickly as digital objects. None of this is a surprise or an accident. Um, since 2008, the Facebook election, the meme election has seen a wellspring of technological developments that have, that have made it easy for us to quickly adapt a t-shirt for any idea that we have on the internet. Um, so um, it's easy for us to slap on text, a logo, a, fi- a, vid- a digital meme, and put that on a T-shirt, um, indicate a price, and then um, do some fundraising around that. Um, and then you can get the matching mug as well. Um, sites like Teespring, uh, VistaPrint lets you order just one hat of a of a kind. Um, so if you just you really feel passionate about that hashtag, you could just get one for yourself. Um, custom Ink, there's a there's a hat floating around from Custom Ink, allows you to do this for all kinds of products. They really streamline that process. So that, um, um, so that it's uh, much simpler to take your idea into a physical object in the same way that Photoshop has done for, phys- for, for, um, for images. And if we follow the, the path of April Daniels' tweet, um, she got so much response from November um, uh, for her tweet that um, she then went on to Teespring, created a shirt using that tweet, and then created a fundraiser for the ACLU. And this is all... Um, this is all um, Deliberate. Um, Walker Williams, the founder of Teespring, in an interview noted that the the goal here, the goal with the site, is to bring a product to market um, as quickly as possible. To take care of the production, the logistics of shipping, the logistics of printing, so that all you have to do is have the idea and so you can get it to your audience as quickly as possible. So it streamlines this process. This is why it's just as easy, almost as easy, to type a hashtag as it is to make a t-shirt with that hashtag. Because you you have tools and processes that make that simple. So, I'm going to transition now um, to China, um, and um, I want you to hold this thought about this idea of outsourcing um, a project um, and outsourcing um, you know, sort of the, the tools and the ability to create complex, you know, formerly complex products, um, and start thinking about this um, in another context, in the commercial context. Um, so, um, I want to take you to Shenzhen. Uh, Shenzhen is a um, is a city in a city, a small city of 12 million people, um, in um, in the Pearl River Delta. It's a, um, the uh, if something is made in China, um, it's probably made in the Pearl River Delta. Um, and if that something is hardware, it's probably made in Shenzhen. Um, this is the heart. Um, this is the, the region of the world typically known as the factory, the world's factory, where all um, where the, the stereotypes are made in China, cheap products, copycat goods, um, things like that um, are popping up and being shipped around the world. This infrastructure um, has also given birth to a new type of object production um, known as Shanzhai. Um, and I'll talk about a little bit Shanzhai, and I apologize to the non-Chinese speakers, but Shenzhen and Shanzhai have nothing to do, to, um, ed- they're not related etymologically, although they sound very similar. Um, and, um, uh, but um, uh, Shanzhai is really endemic. Um, Shanzhai production is endemic to Shenzhen. What we're seeing is right now is a shift in narrative about Shenzhen from made in China to created in China. And in the Western world, um, the narrative is shifting from Shenzhen as the Silicon Valley of Hardware. How many of you have heard that phrase? Shenzhen is the Silicon Valley of Hardware. Starting to emerge. Yeah, it's starting to become more familiar as the narratives around what is made in China and how things are made in China is starting to shift. Um, but what interested me was, um, at the one plant, um, I was interested in kind of Silicon Valley practices entering Shenzhen, but I was also interested in selfie sticks. Um, and um, i to talk a little bit about why that is, but, sh- um, I'll, let me, let me define Shanzhai for you really quickly. Uh, Shanzhai means mountain bandit, um, and it's um, it's typically translated as bootleg, but in many cases it's actually a form of open production um, that very much looks very similar to the hat production, to the to the yarn production, where many many people are producing objects um, using raw materials. Um, and so, if I can ask, um, if we can start passing around um, passing around some of the selfie sticks, I brought I brought a bunch of selfie sticks from Shenzhen. And again, from afar they all look the same, but as you look closer, you start to see these characteristics, these common characteristics of form. Style stance, um, and I'll talk a little bit about how this open, um, how this open, um, excuse me, a community of production is now intersecting with the internet. Um, so, for those um, who, who don't have selfie sticks in your hands, here are some photos I've taken from around the world. Um, this is from New York. Um, this is from Paris. Um, sorry, it's a little dark. Um, this is from Spain. Um, this is. Um, these are from China. Um, and the selfie stick is itself an iteration. It's itself a remix of the, produ- of the, of the, um, you know, the culture of uh, producing tripods. Um, and so you remove the tripod base, and then you get a selfie stick. And so, um, so this, is, this is really the, the evolution of the selfie stick as the form of iteration. There is no one selfie stick. There is no one producer of selfie sticks. There's no one factory of selfie sticks. There's no one shipper of selfie sticks. It's, highly, it's a highly multiply-produced and distributed product. And yet somehow it went global and became a global product very quickly. There are a ton of variations. There's ones with mirrors. Yes. Um, yeah, there, there is actually, and we can talk about that actually. So um, uh, let's, uh, let's 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 um, hold on to that note. Um, so um, there's selfie sticks with Bluetooth um, uh, with Bluetooth triggers. Uh, there's selfie stick. Um, this is a selfie stick that has no trigger because it comes with an app that detects um, when you are um, doing the peace sign, which is a common common sign that Asians use when getting a picture taken, and then it automatically takes your picture. <laughs> Um, there's a tiny selfie stick. Uh, there are mid-sized selfie sticks. All of these selfie sticks are in this high, wide variety of variation. Um, and so, when we're talking about patents, for instance, um, the question, of course, is in which which selfie stick is patented, and to what extent is our variations um, covered by that patent or not. Um, and so, it's an open question. Um, and so. Um, Put the volume down here. Some video from Shenzhen. And Shenzhen, the way Shenzhen works, and this is a um, great description from Sylvia Littner and Sarah Mavle, who um, wrote about Shenzhen, is, um, is that it's a network process. It's very much bottom-up production rather than top-down supply chain management. And what that means is that a small but a quickly expanding network of producers, designers, entrepreneurs, engineers, vendors, and traders are working in a networked way to compete um, on the global, in the global markets um, with um, um, in, in typically in global south markets to create products um, that people um that um people want um but typically don't have access to from the kind of top-down supply chain management um uh, companies. Um and so Shenzhen is very much a network process. Um within Shenzhen, um Shenzhen the city, not Shenzhen the production process. Shenzhen the city, you have um people you you have stores where you can buy the raw parts to make electronics. Um, you can also buy the electronics themselves. The Shanghai ecosystem has created uh, miniature phones. It's created Bluetooth karaoke mics for your, phone, uh, for, um, for your smartphone. And this was, these are phones that were exhibited at the V&A Museum um, exhibition in, Sh- in the Shenzhen Biennale. Um, and these phones um, are, uh, were, again, a remix of existing phones, but with larger buttons so that um, el- um, elderly people who are, or people with visual impairments could actually read, read the buttons. And so our narratives about, um, about the products that come out of Shenzhen as copycats um, really needs to shift to start thinking about this notion of remix, that there's a base product um, that people are often riffing off of um, and, then, um, and then making variations that didn't exist before. Yes?
2: You put your own brand on that and, and, and yeah, sell it. That's right, so that's a, great, <laughs>
1: that's a great point. So what we're seeing here is an example of white label production. Um, so in um, that notion of brand, it's, it's very similar to the hats actually. Um, where you can order these phones, um, online, um, and then place, um, place a brand or a brand identity that, um, um, or a logo similar to the hats and how the hats work. Um, and so, um, so, so these adaptations, um, are very much, um, very much designed for people, um, to come from the internet, um, to say, okay, I want these sort of phones. I'm gonna put, I'm gonna slap a logo on it and then create that. And so it's a good example of white label production as well. So the way Shanjai works um, is very similar to how digital content works. And if, if anyone's ever tested headlines um, for journalism articles, in, in journalism, people often test 10 different headlines, they'll throw them all out, see which ones get resonance, and then pick the one that gets the most likes and clicks, and then amplify that one. Shanjai works in a very similar way to digital content in that regard. Products are market tested directly by throwing small batches of several thousand pieces into the market. Um, the, you know, some of the, you know, you can imagine the first selfie sticks, people weren't sure if those would actually reach market saturation or market interest, and so they would just throw out a few hundred and see what happened, um, and then um, see if people responded and wanted to buy some. And then here, it's actually a very different process from how Silicon Valley typically works. Here, prototyping and consumer testing occur rapidly and alongside the manufacturing iteration process. So as you're throwing things out, as with those headlines, um, as with digital content, you're also getting feedback immediately from buyers. Um, and so that's how shanghai works it 's very much in this kind of open system and it's already um, this was bef- you know this was really before the internet started to take hold in china and so as the internet is is uh, connecting with uh, with this kind of open network system uh, we're starting to see um, that the internet is Um, in many different ways, is shortening production time. Um, I did a workshop with uh, Sam Hu at the Shenzhen Open Innovation Lab, which was uh, founded by David Lee, who's a um, a friend of Berkman and um, and an advisor at the the Digital Asia Hub. And there, they're really studying different styles of open innovation that look different um, from uh, from our typical definitions in the West about what innovation looks like. And um, and so Sam was really arguing, as we did this workshop, is, um, is that the Internet is shortening production time. Typically in Shenzhen um, with the Shanghai ecosystem, a phone can be built in 26 um, in, in uh, 26 days. Um, a, new phone can be, a new phone can be built in 26 days. And Sam was arguing that that um, can be dramatically shortened um, to sometimes as short as two weeks, but probably, probably a little bit longer than that. Um, but in any case, um, you, we're seeing increases in efficiency. And um, to break that down a little bit, these are a few examples of what that might look like. Um, so WeChat, how many of you are familiar with WeChat? Chinese-language social network kind of resembles um, WhatsApp or Facebook. Um, it's allowed for people to directly communicate with their factory, regardless of where they are. And importantly, it's allowed for user feedback loops so that users, can, um, users of selfie sticks or other products can have direct interaction and contributions with the designers and makers. Um, so you have a tighter feedback loop so people can make those quick iterations that I was just talking about. You have direct sales and e-payment. And e-payment is really important because it means you don't even have to leave your house to buy a new product. Taobao is, um, is another site. How many of you are familiar with Taobao? Um, it's kind of an eBay-like platform, yeah. Um, so Taobao has crowdfunding as well, so um, similar to those Teespring hats that I was sharing, uh, where you can test an idea, see how many people buy it before you make a production line. Um, this allows for crowdfunding of different, of different products. It's also direct sales, and Taobao um, really taps into the Shanghai ecosystem, because it provides data um, for the things that you're selling, so that you can respond, just like headlines, to the ones that are trending. Um, and quickly spin up new production lines Alibaba express um, is, um, is sh- handles shipping logistics, so the the, the, uh, the the difficulty of moving atoms across countries um, becomes streamlined and then there are also western networks and this is probably i 'm not sure this is probably how the the, uh, the selfie stick the hoverboard, um e-cigarettes uh, first started emerging in western contexts um through kickstarter through amazon um through uh, that allow for crowdfunding and direct sales online and then also through instagram um instagram is a key key way that um that a lot of the shandai ecosystem is tested in global markets um and um based on based on likes and shares um so people can again just like with digital content test an idea before committing to the full thing McKinsey's done a report on this on wired companies. Um, and so, um, there's a number of, um, you know, number of benefits that a company gets when they, when they connect, uh, with, um, connect with the internet. And, um, and obviously there's this kind of boost in productivity. Um, but as we saw with the t-shirts, so that as, it, as you get an increase in productivity, you also get a flowering of creativity. Um, so, Points four and five are really relevant to this conversation, where you have these lower barriers to innovation. It's lower barrier to production, to creation, so that once you have an idea online, it's easy to realize that and actualize that in physical space. And then also new competition because um, it empowers entrepreneurs and small business. We can debate that point, but um, but the point here is that it's easier for an individual with a random idea to make that make it make a product and then test it in the global market. And selfie sticks again are a good example of this um, of that because selfie sticks are. Um, they're kind of a spectacle. Um, this is a selfie stick with a light. Um, and, um, and it's a spectacle when it's being used, um, and then people are compelled to take a picture of it. Um, when they take a picture of it, um, they post it back online, and then people are wondering, oh, where did you get that selfie stick? So just like those digital memes, it becomes the selfie stick becomes part of digital meme culture and internet meme culture. Um, and, um, and then those sales on Instagram um, are circulating on the same networks on which some on which selfie stick memes are circulating. So if we can imagine, this is a very rough diagram, it's much rougher than the other one. But if we can imagine um, the kind of meme sparking event, I'm sure we all remember the first time we saw someone using a selfie stick and how, how odd that looked. Um, and the kind of compulsion to take the picture. Um, that picture, as it circulates online, it, it's, it's being watched. Um, people are looking at the trends of selfie sticks. Which ones are circulating? Which ones are popular? Where are they coming from? And then, and then you can, um, in the, in the Shanghai ecosystem, people can create a variation. Post that online, test that on Instagram, test that on Taobao, um, test that on, on other sites. And then, um, and then get feedback from their users. Um, and then, um, and, the, um, and oftentimes they often bypass the physical markets. They just rely on the internet as a means of distribution. And so the, the, object, the object distribution um, is looking just as mimetic as kind of the, the way that the digital representations of those objects are spreading. Um, and, then, um, and then finally, um, if it goes into the physical markets, it's often reached a certain scale. Um, and so at that point, um, it becomes, like the selfie stick, a global product that you can now find in pretty much every major tourist site around the world. So, memes, um, internet memes are interesting just as a cultural practice, um, and they kind of feed into the kind of human interest in remixing and riffing. Um, I think, um, um, and as we think about, as I think about memes, I often think about technological enablers. I've been looking at memes in a variety of global contexts like China, Uganda, Kenya, United States. And it dep- the meme culture often depends on the technological culture and the technological capacity of the context in which memes operate. And so um, early memes, early hashtag memes um, often uh, sprung up in the dial-up context or in low-bandwidth context. Um, and so the technological ability to distribute memes um, uh, limited people to text and hashtags and ASCII art. Um, and so they use networks like Blogspot or Twitter, and then you have the production capacity for keyboards and computers. Photos and videos, as broadband comes around um, in different contexts, that's when photo and video memes start to emerge. You start to see the remixes of videos, uh, YouTube videos, uh, Vine videos, etc., Um, enabled by broadband and mobile broadband Um, and then also the emergence of networks that allow people to have that kind of shared space that's so important to internet meme culture. And then also the production of this. Uh, You need need smartphones, you need cameras, you need editing software to really effectively make a visual meme. And I argue that we're at that stage now with objects. And what I mean by that is that um, we have a means of distribution. Um, We have simple ways that simplify that UPS, SHIP, Alibaba. And then you have networks that, sh- that allow for sharing: Ravelry for knitting networks, Taobao for hardware, um, Amazon for other types of products, Thingiverse for 3D printing. And then you have a means of production as well. You have the Shanzhai ecosystem in China. You have maker spaces and knitting spaces in the United States. You have 3D printers as well. Um, and then, and to some extent, um, distribution can also happen on the internet. This is most true with knitting patterns and with 3D, you know, kind of scripts for 3D printing where the, uh, the raw materials are local, locally available, but the distribution of the code to make, that, make those raw materials into objects um, can be done through the internet. So to conclude, um, I want to just kind of share three points. Um, one is that object memes reflect an aesthetic rebuttal to this notion of digital dualism. The idea, digital dualism is the idea that the digital world and the real world are separate. And we often talk about the real world and the virtual world. But as we see the intersection of internet memes and object memes, we're seeing that internet culture is influencing culture more generally and vice versa. Um, And So uh, I don't think it's useful to think of internet culture as entirely separate from the culture at large. And we're starting to see that literally manifesting itself in protest culture in the United States. The Internet Meme Framework is also a useful way to understand a certain range of object production, a certain sort of informal production that combines networked modes of production, similar to Shanjai or the, um, the, the hat printing, um, with the global reach of the Internet and global shipping services as well, the ability to move bits and atoms with just as much ease and efficiency. And then thirdly thanks to key technological enablers like these sites like white label sites um, that allow for, for us to interface with the makers and producers we're seeing more than gains in efficiency we're also seeing a burst in creativity from a multiplicity of people um, and so um, as you get that kind of ease of production you also get an increase in creativity and so objects produced in this way start to behave like digital objects they're remixable they never quite stay still they're informal they're produced by individuals and they're they're not uh, produced with kind of top-down supervision. And they, they appear to be random, uh, much to many people's consternation, but also to many people's delight. And that randomness is, is, is a key part of this. Is um, As you look at the objects, they, you know, a year ago, they would have seemed completely random. So that's, um, that's the conversation. Um, that's, those are the notes I wanted to share. Um, and in true Shanjai fashion, I just wanted to throw those out there and then um, get, get feedback and let other people guide the conversation from here. So um, thank you very much.
0: Thank you. Thank you, An. That was super interesting. Um, I was wondering are there different characteristics of an online meme that make it more likely to cross over into the physical? You gave a, a, a few examples of political memes. Yeah. Are there things that have to do with identity, or what kinds of demographics would yeah. be more likely yeah. to, to, to engage in this?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a very, it's a very interesting question. I do think that it is, um, because, um, because when we're, especially when we're talking about hats and t-shirts, um, those are identified, those are identified, identity signals. Um, in protest culture, um, before the internet, we had buttons and pins and stickers, um, and bumper stickers, um, as a means of, of, you know, connecting our political identity with kind of a physical object that either we wore in our person or that we drove around with. Um, and so, so I do think that, um, um, at least in, in the political context, um, often the, the, um, the digital memes that, that have to do with self and have to do with a strong sense of self or strong sense of emotion tend to do very well. A recent one is She Persisted, um, the, um, you know, the kind of meme that popped up um, you know, in, response to, um, you know, in response to the phrase, Never, you know, she, uh, she spoke up, and uh, something like, she spoke up, we told her to be quiet, and nevertheless, she persisted, right? Um, and so for Elizabeth Warren. Um, and so um, things that evoke strong emotion tend to, tend to pop up um, more frequently in these kind of physical objects. Thanks. Yes. I think a mic's coming around. Yeah.
2: There's something very attractive about the production model that you showed in China. By, I recall hearing about one of its disadvantages about a year ago, which is, remember the exploding hoverboards? Yes, absolutely. And it sounds like they came from a system like this, where there were many different manufacturers. Yeah. They, were, they were weakly branded or unbranded. Okay. And it was really impossible for anybody, whether you were you know, an airline or a store that wanted to sell them, or a consumer, or Consumer Reports Magazine. Nobody could really tell what were the safe models and which weren't, because the branding was so weak and the production was so distributed. Um, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Sure, absolutely. I think that's absolutely right. I think I completely agree. Um, and I think this is why I, I often reference digital meme culture. Because digital meme culture, as we know now, is not always rosy. Um, there's a lot of fake digital, meme, digital memes floating around. There's a lot of unregulated memes. So we don't know if it's what's real or fake. Um, Multiple sources. Yeah, that part I'm less sure of. Um, definitely hoverboards, um, because of this weak regulation and, um, and because multiple people can produce this, right? And, and there's this competition for lower price, lower price with maximum sales, right? It's the same dynamics that we see with digital memes. Um, as we think about content that circulates online, it's often, um, um, it's often not necessarily reliable. We don't know. Um, and we often need an extra layer of verification. Um, and checking. And so, um, so absolutely, these, um, these informal modes of production, um, uh, with physical objects tend to inherit the same problems with digital memes, um, already, uh, we see in, in, uh, in the digital context. Um, so I think the hoverboards are a very good example of that. Fortunately, selfie sticks don't explode. Um, um, this one might because it does have a battery. Um, and, uh, and what you do have is e-cigarettes, um, made in the ecosystem that do explode in your face. Um, and so, um, the lack of regulation is a risk just as it is in digital context. Yes, I think there's a microphone. Oh, I think the problem with the phone was the design of the battery
2: case had somehow been rounded, and it was smaller than spec, so any battery would have been bad.
1: Enough. Okay, okay. Do you know the process of which by which the those batteries are
0: made? You saw tech reports. It was the case size, the design of the battery itself. Okay, okay. It
2: Did you say the 2016 election was the meme election?
1: Um, a lot of people said that, yeah,
2: yeah. yes. I'm, I'm wondering what the memes were on the among evangelicals or conservatives, because I, I think yeah. it was used there as well. Do you, yeah, absolutely. W- what are some examples absolutely. on and that side?
1: Absolutely, um, if deplorables. If you look at um, hashtag deplorables, so when uh, Hillary Clinton um, referred to many of Trump's supporters as a basket of deplorables, um, it was that same practice of reclamation um, of the, of what was intended as an insult um, into a form of empowerment. And so you have I'm a, a deplorable. Right. Excuse
2: me? Like. I'm a deplorable, exactly, yeah, Exactly,
1: yeah. exactly. And so if you search for t-shirts, hats, mugs, uh, cloth bags, uh, pillows, you get the same phenomenon. And so you have the deplorables hashtag, the deplorables memes. You have the deplorable, um, which is a physical gathering on Inauguration Day, and then you also have the physical yeah. objects. So um, this kind of uh, meme ecosystem exists just as much um, on uh, the right as it does on the left and, um, and with other circles as well.
2: I wonder if it won the election forum. Uh,
1: there, there is a, there's a, there's a this is debatable. There's a conversation around that. Uh, meme practitioners on the right refer often to meme magic um, that helped um, that helped elect Trump, um, and so um, uh, yeah. I, I, but when I think about when we think about memes uh, um, and, and influencing elections, you know, I, w- I would argue that we really need to think about the, the larger media ecosystem um, and how the memes relate to that. Um, and so, um, so I think it's a more complex question than simply looking at the memes. If that makes sense. Yeah.
2: Thank you for this really thought-provoking talk. Um, I take weird factory process tours, um, so I've got a comment on that last question and another question for you. Sure, please. Um, swizzle sticks. Um, I've actually toured uh, the factory that's the major swizzle stick manufacturer in the United States, and their um, you know their secret sauce is they figured out how to combine inkjet printing with Injectable, you know, plastic molds, so that they can do custom swizzle sticks, Mm -hmm. Um, and it's so that's another sort of example that you probably wouldn't come at through these normal means of 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 seeing that. Yeah. Um. um, Another factory I've toured, and this was a number of years ago, was a light bulb factory in Mm -hmm. Ohio, Um, and like any like a lot of factories you might tour, the first question you end up asking is, why are you still here? You know, why are you still in the United States and, you know, not being produced in China? Um, and their answer was Walmart. Um, it turns out that um, Walmart's product cycle time for light bulbs, like seasonal light bulbs for Christmas, um, is too short for, you know, the, the the slowboat from China, right. as it were. Right. So my my question is, I mean, what's the shipping network for these products that make them sort of memeable at you know internet speed? Has there been some you know you know the is there something about them that lends them to um, you know air shipment, et cetera, mm. rather than being stuffed on a you know a freighter that's going to take weeks and weeks, mm. um, thus. Completely changing the iteration time.
1: Right, right. Yeah, I think um, with, with many um, because of the, the particularities of, uh, of the Pearl River Delta, um, it's long been because it's been the factory of the world for so long. Shipping networks have to go through there, um, and so um, so what you what you often see with informal production and, and, and kind of informal um, you know, uh, makers who, who are not you know um, who are not part, necessarily part of those shipping networks, if they're able to piggyback. On to existing shipping networks, um, and so to get the products out there, um, it's not particularly fast, um, but it's much faster than before um, because uh, because of those efficiencies. Um, and so, um, um, and then um, what sometimes happens, and this is um, this is this is more on the speculative side, but um, what I've, what I've been uh, talking about with with people who who do the kind of global distribution of some of these informal objects is that. Um, is that, the one, they'll test it on Instagram, right? And then they'll actually fly someone over, um, someone who might be flying back to whatever context it is, to then start showing them around um, and put them in a shop, see if people buy that. Um, and so that that's one way that people skim over. But there is still, of course, a limitation around the, 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 the shipping. Um, something that's important here is also the logistics of shipping, which is customs, packaging, things like that. Um, and that's part of what makes things faster is that you have infrastructure that makes it much simpler to do that. And I think an American analog is a product called SHIP, S-H-Y-P, are people familiar with SHIP? Um, SHIP is allows you to just take a picture of an object um, and then someone will just show up, pick it up, uh, package it and ship it for you. Um, very, very easy, right? So um, the, the ability to move the object is still bound by, uh, by geography and laws of physics, um, but all the other logistics are streamlined substantially by
0: services. Great. I want to go off script for uh, a second. I'm just curious: um, who in this room has engaged in making a physical version of an internet meme in whatever way you you see that? Oh, really? So I was also curious about like demographics yeah. of who who's most engaged in this, and also yeah. is this mobilizing communities uh, or demographics that wouldn't ordinarily be engaged in the internet memes?
1: Yeah, yeah. So the demographics that I'm, I'm noticing um, tend to be. Um, up- People in their 20s, um, so people with a little bit more access um, you know, beyond like the, the kind of digital memes because these are people who are, who are organizing events. Um, and so um, Geronimo um is a good example of, of someone who, um, who is an organizer, an activist, um, who wanted to use hats as a way of galvanizing people to come out. And, and I think there's something important there. Um, about the, the kind of physical manifestation in, in terms of social movements, um, because by, by putting on these hats, by putting on these shirts, um, people, um, you know, people indicate once they're in a crowd that they're part of that crowd. Um, so when you have photographs, and that's why these pink hats are really important, um, there's no ambiguity um, about who's there. It's, it's kind of a direct address to misinformation networks around, um, around like, uh, around what 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 crowds are gathering. So so often we see pictures of crowds that are uh, misused. Um, yeah, the photos of the LA protests that were actually from Venezuela a few years ago, um, and so. Um, but with the pink hats, it was, it was a very clear code that this was happening, particular to this event. So, um, so in, in terms um, in terms of demographics, I, I do notice that it's more common with activists and the people that activists are trying to to kind of organize and rally. Uh, uh, Rachel's question sparked this question in my mind. Um, have you looked into culture surrounding? turning memes into Halloween costumes or the cosplay community? Yes. Um, yeah, I haven't looked formally. Um, but there, there, um, there's an annual gathering in New York called Halo Meme um, uh, for Halloween, where people dress up as memes. Um, and so um, I think looking at creative communities like cosplay, like um, even street art, um, uh, those, these kind of creative communities, um, you know, long before these object cultures that I just referenced, use the internet as part of their sharing and their, their kind of inspiration. And so you have you have networks where people can um, can post their ideas, post their um, post like their tips, and then other people in other contexts can then do the same. And so what's, what's interesting about looking at this in protest culture is seeing how that again establishes kind of visual and verbal vocabulary that makes a protest in Chicago, in Seattle, um, in, in San Francisco, in New York all kind of feel the same. Um, in terms of the media objects. Um, but I think you have the same phenomenon with other creative communities. Um, knitting, certainly long before the pussy hats, um, was, um, was a very important. Um, it was very important that it was um, also a networked community, um, as much as it is physical.
0: So, yeah. Yes.
2: Yes, uh, I don't know how relevant this is to what yeah. you were t- talking about. But uh, my favorite cap was uh, from Norway. And uh, it was mostly red. And it had a white and blue stripe, but people kept stopping me on the street mm-hmm. and uh, wanting to know if I was a Trump supporter. Uh, finally, my wife said, You know, wearing that cabbage is not a good idea.
0: Uh,
1: yeah. So I think, I think what, you know, that's, a, that's an interesting example of how symbologies can be transformed. Uh, the kind of the hegemonic meaning of a symbol, like a re- like a baseball cap and a red baseball cap, um, that you know at once you know before might not have meant anything in particular, It might have signaled allegiance to a sports team, um, but that uh, that can then be um, can then um, have its meaning overtaken by a larger kind of a larger um, collective of people who agree to to a certain meaning of that symbol, um, and and I think that's why it's so important to also understand the kind of remix cultures that emerge out of that. Um, because what people are doing is responding to that hegemonic symbolic symbology of, um, of the red hat and trying to transform it into another sort of meaning. Um, and so you have the Make America Mexico Again hats. You have, um, um, Jose Antonio Vargas, who's an immigrant rights activist, created a, um, Immigrants Make America Great red hat, and that's on his Twitter handle. Um, and so the, these attempts to, to reshape the symbology, um, are, should be seen as activist, um, activist actions that, that, um, that try to change the meaning of these things. And whether or not that's successful is a different, um, a different debate. Uh, from a non-advocacy um, stance, sure. I'm, I kept thinking about um, films, like yeah. blockbuster films even, or perhaps larger indie films that could, um, like a hybrid. So yeah. you have these marketing of products right, that go along with Disney or something like that. And I'm wondering if there could be, or if that would work for them to connect with the bottom-up approach. To get their uh, products
0: connected to the film more widespreadly, widespread marketed.
1: Absolutely, um, there's a different talk I could give. That would be for marketers. Um, that would be basic, basically the same slides, but with different talking points. I think um, when we're talking about um, marketing and, and film distribution, um, you know, when when people listen in on hashtags or on, on trending memes about any given um, kind of um, any given movie, um, they're also listening for how the audience is responding to that, right? Um, and um and I'm, I'm i can think of one example that's not quite a film but is, is kind of related is uh, lego um lego um had you know for the long time longest time distributed instructions for how to use lego um and they noticed that people um were um were sharing tips on how to make other kind of lego products um you know make other kind of lego combinations and um there for a while there's a little resistance but um, but uh, pretty soon they embraced that kind of bottom-up production, and then created LEGO communities so that people could um, could share that. So, um, so absolutely, I think there's a lot of value for for marketers or people who are trying to promote a brand um, to to think about this um, you know, beyond the social movement context. Um, and um, um, and you know, I'm pretty sure I can find an example of a branded selfie stick or a branded hat that that kind of uh, dips into this. But and no, no, no specific examples come to mind right now. Yes, I think there's the mic.
2: I just wanted to reintroduce a question that got asked earlier and you sure. put off, which was about yeah. the patents and selfie sticks.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the, the, the history of patents of selfie sticks is actually very interesting. Um, uh, the, the first patent that I'm aware of was, um, was by a, uh, a Japanese man. Um, I'm going to misquote this, so I'm going to spread misinformation, but it's um, I think in the 70s um, who um, had created a, a kind of selfie stick-like device um, that wasn't quite ready for the market because you didn't have smartphones. Um and then you see selfie sticks in chindogu, which is a, a Japanese art of, of creating useless inventions. Um and I think that was in the <laughs> eighties Yeah, that was in the eighties. Um and so at back then it was deemed as u- a useless invention. But again because the cameras hadn't caught up, the networks hadn't caught up. Um and then there's was, a, I believe he's Canadian um created another patent for a selfie stick. Um but um and thinking about patent law is a little outside my um my oh, that's, right now, right? excuse me. Um, many of them, yeah, I believe so. Um, but also, there's this question, and a patent lawyer would have to comment on this. Given the variation of selfie sticks that you've seen, um, does the patent cover all those variations? Because again, when we look from afar, it always looks like there's one selfie stick. But when you actually go into depth, into what's happening in Shenzhen, um, there's actually a wide variety of variation, um, and the, the original patents probably look very different from
0: um, from this one with the light, for instance. I have a, a follow-on question, which is. In your research or in research of other people, do you know of anybody that's mapping out the evolution of some of these memes, especially with the physical part? Like I'm curious about the selfie stick, like how it spread. Um, Do you know of anybody doing that kind of work?
1: Um, No, I'm not actually. If if there's other people who are familiar with this, that'd be great. Um, I'm actually interested in in starting to map one of these. I suspect, um, I've, I have two hunches right now, um, and I'll just, I'll just say them on record, is um, that the karaoke mic um, for smartphones and also certain types of Bluetooth headphones um, might be the next kind of thing that kind of, uh, kind of percolates um, in global markets. Um, and so I'd be really interested in working with someone to track that. Um, the logistics of that are very difficult because you need people who can work, go to factories, visit them, um, see how those are made, and then track that online, and then start tracking the global distribution. Um, much of the production out of Shenzhen um, is um, is designed not for u s or western markets but for global markets in africa um, parts of asia and latin america and so you need you need a pretty broad research network to really follow that but um, i'd be i'd be thrilled to do, to work with people on that if, if there's any interest I have a question about language. sure because in in eighteen in the
0: eighteen hundreds uh, studies of the demographic transition showed that patterns of changing fertility went by language groups, very fine language group hmm. divisions. And I wondered
1: if anyone's looked at the role of language, especially in, non, in Africa or in places where there's a wide variety of languages and pretty low bandwidth. That's yeah, that's, that's another core interest of mine is actually language barriers on the internet and how, that, um, how, um, how language barriers exacerbate existing inequalities. Um, and so um, there's actually a big challenge with uh, Shanghai makers. Um, uh, most of them only speak Chinese, obviously. Um, and, um, and if they do speak English, it's, um, it's, it's not necessarily vernacular or fluent English. Um, and so there's a strong interest from, from Shanghai communities. Um, they can make things, but it's very hard for them to, to kind of market it um, and get it out there to the broader world it, just in English, English alone. Um, and so, um, uh, so a lot of Shanjai makers will just make something, but it won't necessarily see the light of day um, because, um, because you kind of have that gap from production to distribution and marketing. Um, and so, um, so certainly, um, in other contexts, we can extrapolate i don 't have specific examples, but everything i 've looked at have been typically majority languages of a given country, um, so it might be English, Spanish, Indonesian, but not the indigenous languages or local languages um, and so um, um, on the other hand um, because um, because these are physical objects because um, because digital meme culture is often language agnostic, um, there, uh, these things tend to spread regardless um, and so um, uh, but, uh, yeah, that's largely speculation. I haven't uh, dived into that specifically.
0: Well,
1: so, uh, During your talk, you spoke briefly about how uh, companies use Instagram to market their products. Can you speak a little bit more about sure, that? Yeah. So um so the way that an Instagram marketing might work is um is a company um and typically these are small shops um who have a physical stall. Um so this is an extension of the idea of, of of physical stalls and which is very common in China, um where a small individual will have like a small shop with like their their um their products. Um but to extend their network, they'll often use a place like Instagram or WeChat um to market the so specific products they have and then test that with likes um and see if people are interested in principle to the idea. So this becomes a low-cost way to test it, very similar, and again, I, I use this um, analogy of headline testing for, news, for newspapers, um, for online newspapers, because it's, it's a very similar process to that, where um, you know, with newspapers will test 10 different headlines, and they'll see which one really percolates, um, and it's very similar to that with Instagram. And the, the Instagram strategy um, is, is very common in the global south, um, and, and part of the reason it, 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 it is that common is because people are already there. On Instagram, on their mobile phones. And it's much less of a hassle for someone to just scroll through Instagram than it is to go to a
0: dedicated website that might not be mobile ready. Great. Sense. Let's have another round of our applause for An. <laughs> mm. Thank you. Thank you. Great, thank you.